So I want to share something with you this morning from the book of Luke, chapter 15. And it's a very well-known parable. And this parable has been, uh, has been preached and taught in several from several different perspectives and angles. And there are many lessons we can learn. And we probably would not be able to exhaust all of them this morning. But we are going to cover uh, one topic specifically. Before I do that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kneel down here and pray. And if you can join me, that's fine. If you cannot, we've knelt a couple times this morning. And uh, it's understandable. But I'm going to pray before we start. Heavenly Father, once again this morning, we place ourselves in, our, in your hand. And we ask that we may have the assistance of the Holy Spirit this morning. As we open the Bible, as we study your word, as we meditate upon your words, may we be assisted by your Holy Spirit. That the message you have for us this morning may be clear and may be understand, understood by each and every one of us. Please use me as your instrument. May I speak on your behalf and not convey my own ideas. I ask you in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, memories. I was thinking about this, about the, uh, this phenomenon called memory. What is memory? When people go out to buy a computer, uh, in the old days they would look at a computer with uh, one uh, megabyte of RAM, RAM or uh, 64 megabytes of RAM, or random access memory. And then we came to the gigabytes. And now a computer with a four uh, gigabyte RAM is not too much, so you need more powerful computers. So what is memory actually? Memory is something that is, is stored, the memories are stored in our brain. How exactly that happens, I cannot explain. I'm not a doctor, I'm not a neuroscientist. Uh, but a few things that I researched about that uh, over the past few weeks, I'd like to let you know. There are, they, they, they say there are two types of memories, the short-term memory and the long-term memory. And we usually think of the short-term memory as something like, whoa, something that I remember that I did yesterday. That's in my short-term memory. All scientists say, no, that's not true. Short-term memory is something that you, you remember from the last 15 or 30 seconds only, not more than that. Uh, things that you remember from an hour ago are actually in your long-term memory. So the short-term memory is very fleet, very, very feeble. It's it, everything that passes and you don't really give much attention to it or you want to focus too much on it and it goes away. That's the short-term memory. It's limited in capacity. Usually when you buy the same thing, when you buy a computer, the hard drive has much more uh, storage capacity than the random access memory, the RAM memory. And that's how it is with our brain as well. Our short-term memory is very limited in capacity and limited in duration. Now the long-term memory, that's where we store everything that is longer in, in time, is lengthier in time. And they say that there are two types of, of long-term memories. One is the implicit memory. All those things that you do by habit, right? 
the skills that you acquire and that you do automatically, those are the implicit memories that you have. Like you don't think when you're driving, you don't really think that I gotta put my hand on the wheels and uh, you don't really think about that. When you're riding a bicycle, they say that riding a bicycle is something you learn and you never forget. You don't really sit on the bicycle and you think this is what I need to do. Uh, you don't really. So that's the implicit memory. And that's, uh, there is also what they call the explicit memory. So those things that you have to be consciously aware of and intentional about trying to remember. And those are the memories, for example, uh, when you think of the capital of Nova Scotia. What's the capital of Nova Scotia? It's uh, Bridgewater. No. Oh, some are not so sure. It's Halifax. Halifax is the capital of Nova Scotia. So that's your general long-term memory. That may not be working for some of us right now, but that's the, the knowledge we acquire, and it's stored there. And some other memories, they say they are episodic, like they, they are related to a, to a certain episode. So you may know that Halifax is the capital of Nova Scotia, but if you were there, if you've been there, and, and uh, the week you were there, you got sick, for example, then you remember, oh, I got sick in Nova Scotia. So that's related to a specific episode, a specific event. So you come to church here on the Sabbath, and you know that the church is located here on Dundas Street, but on a given Sabbath, something special will happen. And that will be recorded in your memory because it is related to a certain event, to a certain episode. Now, how do your brain select between what it's going to discard of and what it's going to retain? We don't know. But apparently, this is done in, in a certain region, a certain area of the brain that's called the hippocampus. So it is this hippocampus that decides, defines what's going to be stored and retained and what's going to be discarded. So we see that our memory, it's, it's actually very flexible. And scientists have said that there isn't really one specific region in the brain where those memories are stored. They're stored everywhere. And then the brain goes and through those electrical connections is able to retrieve information from all areas in the brain and bring it back. So when you have something that you need to remember, and you say, I, I knew this, but I can't remember it. I can't recall it. It's not necessarily that you have lost it. It's not necessarily that uh, it was erased. It only means that you cannot make the the necessary connections to get to the point where that information is. So that's why sometimes you say, I want to tell you something, but you can't remember what. So you go back to the bedroom where you were, and then you can remember. So the information was still there. It is just that you were not able to make the connections. So you go back to where you were, and then you are able to make all those connections. The brain does it and then you, you come back with, uh, with the memory. Now, all of this talk about memory is because we can never stress enough that everything that goes into our brain has the potential of being retained and recorded, right? 
So whatever you expose your eyes to, whatever you expose your brain to, whatever you expose your ears to, has the great potential of being retained. So we need to be careful with what we feed our brains with. In Psalm 139, Psalm 139, verse 4. Psalm 139, verse 4. The psalmist is saying here, I will praise you. Uh, I said 4, I'm sorry, 139, 14. Psalm 139, verse 14. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows what? Very well. So that's the kind of information that the psalmist had retained and engraved in his brain. That, Lord, my soul knows very well that I've been wonderfully and fearfully made, and your works are just marvelous. Now I want to take you to the parable of the prodigal son. In Luke chapter 15, verses beginning in verse 11. And I'm going to read with your permission here the whole parable. We're not going to go very long this morning, but we need to go back to the word. So Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse... No, I'm, I'm confusing you. And that's not my, that was not part of my plan. So let's go back here. It's Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. So Jesus is telling a parable here. And he says, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is, that is coming to me. And he divided it. And he divided the property between them. And not too many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. But no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you, against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So this young man, to begin with, he asked his father for his share of the estate, of the property that one day would come to him. When is it that the children get the, the inheritance? At death. Only at death. Only after the parents 
pass away. So this young man boldly comes to his father and says, Father, I really, really want to see you dead. That's what he's saying in that culture particularly. That's what I want because I don't care much about you. All I want is my part of the inheritance so I can enjoy life. And the father mercifully grants him his desire. He divides, he calculates how much each son would be uh, receiving. And the older son, uh, according to some scholars, should receive two-thirds, should receive actually a double portion, uh, twice as much as the younger son because he was the firstborn. So because there were two sons, according to what we know from the story, then the older son would receive twice as much as the, first, as the second. So he would receive two-thirds, and the younger son would receive one-third. So he gathers all that he receives. He gathers all that he has the right to, even though because of the mercy of the father, because the father had not died yet, and he gathers it all, it all and leaves to a foreign country. And then when he gets there, he spends it all. He wastes all his money. He weighs all his resources. And then one day a famine, a severe famine comes in that land. And he begins to beg for food. He begins to beg for work. The friends have left. He has no more friends. He has no more money. He has no more, more joy. No one is around him anymore. But then the Bible says that he joins him, himself with a citizen of that country. Somehow, someone seems to have mercy on him. And he comes to that person and he joins that person and asks for food. And the person sends him to feed the swine, to feed the pigs in his fields. And this story is being told in, a context of the, in the context of the Jewish people. And we know that the Jews, uh, according to the regulations the, and instructions that God has given in his word and particularly in Leviticus chapter 11 they don't eat pigs they don't eat pork uh, just as we don't do as well so but he's now being willing to work with the, the pigs because he's in one he's in he's hungry he's starving so that's what he has and that's the job he has and he goes there he can't go any lower he can't go any lower in the Jewish perspective. So he goes there and he looks at what the pigs are eating. And the Bible says that he would gladly eat of what the pigs are eating. If only someone would give him something. But not even that. He's able to eat. And then the turning point comes in verse 17. When the Bible says that he one day... He came to himself. Some versions say that they, they came to his senses. What do you think that means? What does it mean to come to himself? To come to his senses? That's not a rhetorical question. You can, you can answer me. What do you think? He realized the mistake he made. Realized the mistake of his sin. He realized he had sinned. That's true. What else? What does it mean to come to your senses? 
What, what else is involved in that? He, he, he realizes how stupid he was. And that ties, that link uh, uh, lines uh, with what I have to say here. One of the aspects that I want to bring to your attention. Somehow, somehow in his, in his suffering, in his starvation, in his despair, somehow the memories of home came back to him. Somehow he connected mentally with what he had at home. Because he says, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish here with hunger. Somehow he remembered how, how just his father had been. He remembered how faithful his father had been. How, how merciful his father had been. And how unfair, how unrighteous, how unjust he had been. It was not his father that was preventing him from enjoying life. It was not his father that was preventing him from having the joys of enjoying the, his portion of the estate. He had been greedy. He had been the one wrong. But somehow the memories of home came back to him. And he desired earnestly, he yearned to, to the opportunity for the opportunity of going back home. And this is something I'd like to bring to your attention. I said in the beginning that we need to be careful with what we feed our brains with because everything that comes into our brain has the potential of being engraved and recorded there. But there is something else. There is the other, there is the flip side of the coin here is that we are also responsible for the kinds, for the types of memories we provide those around us with. And here is my question to you this morning. Not only what are you feeding your brain on, but what are you providing to those around you? What kind of memories are you providing them with? What kind of environment are you supplying those around you with? Are you supplying them with love? Are you providing kindness to them? Are you providing them with a good example of a principled life? Are you providing them with a good example of an honest life? Are you being consistent in your word and action? Are you providing those around you with joy that they may remember the joy with which you lived your life? Are you providing them with laughter that they may go out and remember the good moments they had with you? Are you providing them with a good witness of the joys of salvation? Or are you being a bitter Christian that can't really live a joyful life or allow others to be joyful around you? In a book called Teaching the Elephant to Dance. That's an, an old book. I'm saying old because it's 25 years old, but these days information goes fast. So it, this is a book from 1990. And in this book, the author, author is talking about, he's not talking about religion. He's talking about changes in organizations. 
And here is what he says. I found out that trainers shackle young elephants with heavy chains to deeply embedded stakes. And in that way, the elephant learns to stay in its place. Older, powerful elephants never try to leave, even though they have the strength to pull the stake and walk away. Their conditioning has limited their movements. With only a small metal bra bracelet around their foot attached to nothing, the elephants will stand in place. The stakes are actually gone. But like powerful elephants, many, many people are bound by earlier conditioned restraints. And the statement, we've always done it this way, is limiting. Though they are free from the stakes, they still continue to stand where they were. Now, this is not what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about providing people with memories of, of conditioning. When I think about our children, for example, when I think about our children, whether they're very young or, or grown up, I'm not saying that we should, we should work with them and act toward them as if conditioning them to a certain behavior. We need to, make, to help them make informed decisions. We need to be an example to them. We need to work with them in such a way that they will have good memories of us, but not in a conditioning way. Because you see, as faulty as illustrations are, even this one with the elephants teaches something, teaches us something. Because the elephants, when, when there is a fire, when the circus catches on fire and the elephant sees the flames and smells the smoke, they run for life. They forget their old conditioning and they run for life. So I'm not saying that we should condition our children. We should condition those who come to the faith and our children in faith. We should condition them as we do with animals. That's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is not about binding people to what I think or binding people to some conditioning behaviors. The gospel is about freeing people from sin and freeing people from destructive behaviors. That's what the gospel is all about. So that when the situation comes and when the, the end of the end time comes, people are able to make informed decisions and be solidly grounded in scripture. Are you with me? Does that make sense? I hear a deep silence here. But I hope this message is, in, is encouraging. I think about that a lot. You know, every, uh, every Wednesday, I think I said this already here before, but every Wednesday morning I go to, to my daughter's class in school. It just so happened that it's her class. I was assigned one class, and I go there to grade six. And every time I go in there, and I see those children, and I think about the decision they will make one day, the decisions they're making already, I think that they should be fed with Scripture. They should be allowed 
to, uh, to learn and make decisions that they are not doing something just because they were told to do so, but because they understand that they have a commitment with their Savior. And I hope this is a message that we all as parents and we all as Christians, because our children may be grown up already, may have their own families, but we still receive who welcome people here in the community of faith. And they come as babies, and they come to learn. And we need to teach them in a way that they learn from Scripture and are not conditioned as animals. So that they may grow, and that they may be freed from sin and freed from slavery. Now I want to transition now to our communion service. And I said this was going to be short. Maybe I went longer than I expected. But I want to transition to our communion service. This morning, the communion service we're going to have is all about what? All about remembrance. All about Jesus. Jesus said, "This, these things you do in remembrance of me. So when we think about Jesus and we think about his commandment, his command that we should do this in remembrance of him, what exactly is it that we remember about Jesus? What exactly comes to mind when we think about Jesus? Do we think about his humility, for example? Do you remember him serving others? Do we think about him in, uh, in our day-to-day -day business? And we are encouraged to, to perform a a soul searching, which means to perform personal introspection so we can, we can evaluate where we are at in our walk with the Lord. And this is a personal thing. This is a personal thing. And in our introspection, which, which we encourage to be done prior to, to today, in our personal introspection, have we thought about doing away with the bitterness that maybe we have? Have we thought about, Lord, give me the assurance of, of forgiveness? Have you asked the Lord to change our current of thoughts, thoughts that have been running in selfish channels rather than in serving others? And this introspection should lead us to look away from ourselves, to look at others, to look at Jesus above all else. So this is something, like I said, that we encourage each one of us to do prior to coming here today. And I hope that you have done this. I hope that you have taken the time to examine your own life, not the life of others, your own life, and talk about that with the Lord. And ask the Lord that He may clean yourself, clean you from, from, any, from any dirt, from any sin. And also we are encouraged to, to grow as a family, to be united. So prior to communion, we are also encouraged to make, any, any, to make amends with anyone that maybe we have wronged or someone that they may have wronged us. And we need to, we need to fix that. We're encouraged to do that prior to the communion service. But I remember, I'm reminded now of the thief on the cross. So the thief on the cross, he had lived a life of uh, crime. And up to that, that point, he was condemned. 
But as he was right there next to Jesus, he felt that he had an opportunity. And he pleaded with the Lord that the Lord would save him. And Jesus said, I can guarantee you today that you will be in paradise with me. So I think about that. And I want to give you an opportunity now that if you have not had a chance to make a self, a thorough self-examination, uh, I'm going to pray for you now. And you're going to take a couple minutes for that. Just a couple minutes. And if after the prayer, as we exit for the foot washing uh, ceremony downstairs, if you feel like talking to someone on the way, I strongly encourage you to do that. Because I tell you, brothers and sisters, if every quarter, every three months, we come here for the communion service, and we do this just because we believe that the bread is a symbol of the body of Christ, which it is, and because we believe that the ju uh, grape juice is the symbol of the, the blood of Christ, which it is, and we participate because we think about those symbols, but there is no real change, I tell you, we're doing this just ritualistic and rituals are not going to save us the only thing that will save us is the gospel so there must have there must have trans, there must have be transformation so i'll pray for you now and if there is anything that the lord impresses in your heart for you to do you can do it on the way to foot washing and if there is anything that you must surrender to the lord before you participate in communion this is the time for you to give in, to give it to the Lord. I want to pray with you. And again, we've knelt a few times today. And I'll invite you to kneel one more time now as I pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for the opportunity that we can come and talk to you and, and have the... the assurance that we are accepted in your presence because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this precious gift in Jesus that you gave us, that Jesus went all the way through death because of our sins. But we are also thankful that he rose again and that he is a living Savior. He is no longer in the tomb, the grave could not contain him. He's a living, risen Savior. And we praise you for that. Father, at this moment, we are going to, to separate for the foot washing, uh, foot washing part of this communion service. And then we'll come back here for, for partaking of the bread and of the juice. And Father, we had a few seconds now to to think about our hearts and think about our condition before you. Father, it is my prayer as pastor of this congregation that the gospel may free us from sin, that the gospel may free us from, from any bondage, that we may be able to look at each other and see in each other a child of yours that the gospel of Jesus Christ may help us not feel ashamed and not be burdened with guilt, but be freed from the condemnation of sin. Father, here are your children. 
And you know what goes inside our hearts. And my prayer this morning is that this communion service may be really, really, really meaningful to each one of us. That we may understand, Lord, that you have more for us than just eating and drinking of, of physically of this bread and, and juice. That there is more behind it. That we are partakers of the life that Jesus has promised to us. So I ask, Lord, that this very moment you may forgive all of our sins. Even sins of omission. Even sins that we may not be clearly aware of. But at this very moment, Lord, please forgive us. And help us be in faithful to you in a conscious manner. That we may walk with you. And now as we participate in the communion, may our hearts be clean. May we be cleansed by the power that there is in the blood of Jesus Christ. And may we partake of this communion service unblemished and free from all condemnation and willing to walk with you for the rest of our lives. This is my prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.